tonight we're going to continue our journey through the book of James. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at this theme, the rich man's trouble, or the rich men's troubles. Uh, the book of James is the wisdom book of the New Testament. As Proverbs is the wisdom book of the Old Testament, James is a practical wisdom to the New Testament. And we've journeyed, and oh, how wonderful and rich it's been to look through the book of James. I pray it's been a help to you as we have seen some very practical wisdom on our speech, on interacting with others, and it's just been a wonderful blessing. I pray it's been a help to you. James here in chapter 5 is going to cover a few uh, I don't say odds and ends. It's truly not odds and ends. Some powerful truths we're looking at here. But he looks to tie together the his book here and or this letter to the brethren as the Holy Spirit, of course, guides and directs his heart and life. And we want to tonight continue to look at this chapter. Starting in verse number one, we'll read all the way through verse number six this evening. And let's give the word of God a hearing. Notice what the Bible says. Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your, uh, down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Father, once again, I need your help. I need your mind. Teach us, I pray, Holy Spirit. Help us, I pray, to know your heart regarding riches this evening and the ethical treatment of those we work with physically in the realm of employment, interacting and helping with one another. Teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. James, of course, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. His father was Joseph. Joseph grew up, of, or of course, led his family. Jesus being his stepson, obviously God the Father being the father of Jesus Christ, and of course, rearing James and his other bre and other other siblings and other children that they had. Joseph led his family in a carpenter's home. He was not a carpenter with a lot of wages or a high uh, pay check in any way. In fact, the Bible insinuates that this family scraped enough funds together to get by. This family struggled. As you read through the Gospels, you'll see the family of Joseph, James, of course, being a part of this, bringing offerings that were lower, that were of as little value as required 
because that's what they could bring. They couldn't bring the higher sacrifices, the higher cost of sacrifices and the offerings. They had to bring what little they could afford for the offerings at the temple. James knew truly what it was like to struggle to live. James was very sympathetic with the poor. In fact, earlier in the book of James, he talks about the impartiality of dealing with people all the same. And he, of course, was very very down or uh, or uh, uh, rebuked that's the word I'm looking for uh, the idea of tr- mistreating the poor and James spoke highly of treating each and every single person no matter what's in their bank accounts the same often James of course spoke to Christian brethren about their treatment of the poor throughout his book throughout his letter to the brethren And how the family of God, of course, should be different from that of a selfish and the cruel nature that this world so easily and so plentifully brings to so many areas of society. And as he speaks of the poor, he addresses in these first five verses the rich men. Earlier in, his, uh, uh, earlier in his letter, he makes it very clear that he's speaking to the brethren. Here, he's addressing rich men, saved and unsaved alike. He's addressing those with some means. He's addressing the treatment of the laborers and how the rich have treated the poor. The Bible has a lot to speak about our interactions and our relationships in the home with him, of course, with our fellow church members, but it also speaks a lot of our interaction, our, our, our interaction among our colleagues and those whom we may employ or be employed under. The Bible tells us how we can interact in each of those areas. God gives us so much to instruct us on how we can have a close and wonderful relationship with Him and how we can develop that and grow that and watch that blossom and flourish. We've been singing, Happy, oh, uh, happy is the One, and Psalm on, uh, based on Psalm 1. And if you were to look at that wonderful psalm, it shows the value of having a relationship with God and the flourishing nature of a relationship that strives to be close with God. How vital and important that is. God speaks much on marriage. Much on marriage. God is for the marriage. God is for a husband and a wife. One husband, one wife. God is for the relationship that He has ordained and He gave, of course, demonstrated with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He teaches much on children, much upon children following and obeying their parents and honoring and being an encouragement and a help to the parents. But he also speaks a lot of parents and how their interaction is to be with, of course, their children. 
God speaks and addresses our relationships in the church and how important brethren is to wor- it is to worship together. But God, as we mentioned a moment ago, also addresses the workplace. He addresses how we can live and ought to prosper together fairly and be treated well, no matter if you're the employed or if you're the employer. No matter what area of society, no matter what your role of employment, whether you're a business owner running and running and employing uh, people below you, as far as on the payroll and on the hierarchy of the of the business model, or whether you are in employment and you are receiving a pay slip from an employer, God teaches us how we can handle those things and how we ought to flourish and work together in such a way, how a workplace ought to be. One of the great and powerful things in which we get to see from the Word of God is see examples of both. There is one man that the Bible speaks highly of that had two different types of workforces in his very lifetime. This man began with a heart that was following the Lord, This man was a wise man. His name was Solomon. Solomon was so uh, 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 instructed and so divinely influenced through the teaching of God that his fame began to spread so much so that another queen, a queen of Sheba, heard about the fame of what was going on in Israel and traveled all the way to Jerusalem to see Solomon and to see the kingdom in which he was ruling. And when she came to see the kingdom, she found something that challenged her. Look at 1 Kings chapter 10. I want us to see, just by way of introduction, I want us to see a how God instructs and the blessing that God brings when we follow his instruction in the workplace. In 1 Kings chapter 10, look at what the Bible says in verse number 4. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat at his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his minister and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It is a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit, I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceeded the fame which I heard. Notice this statement here. Happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee, to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king, to do judgment and justice. We find in the first first part of Solomon's reign that Solomon's 
workforce, his servants, those that followed him were happy. They were joyous. They were treated fairly and they were treated well. It was something in which they were in, uh, uh, enjoying to be a part of. It was a blessing to be a part of the uh, of the kingdom of Solomon, and truly they enjoyed that time serving Solomon. But something tragically happened in Solomon's life. After the queen of Sheba saw all that God was doing, his heart began to turn. His heart began to change. He began to take wives in which he should not have done so. And his wives began to change his heart. He began to follow a direction in which God warned him not to go down, but he chose to do so anyway. His heart began to change so much that when he died, those that served Solomon now had a much different testimony. Look at what the Bible tells us just two chapters later in 1 Kings chapter 12. Look at what the Bible tells us in verse number 1. Solomon has died. His son Rehoboam is de uh, designated to take the throne. And notice what the Bible now says. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were to come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt that they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father, notice these words, made our yoke, what? Grievous. Now therefore, make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve thee. When Solomon followed the Lord, the Lord led him to treat those who were working with him, whom he employed well. It encouraged him to treat them fairly, to meet their needs, give them a decent wage and adequate funds, to live and to enjoy happy service with the king. But when his heart changed, so did also his treatment of his servants. His heart became burdensome to those whom he was employing. No longer did his servants find it happy and joyous to serve the king, but they found it grievous, the Bible says. It was no longer a case of enjoying going to work. These people were burdened and sad that they had to go and serve the king. The wisest man whom, who, uh, who, uh, who has ever lived outside of Jesus Christ made his kingdom from something of a happy, joyous service to a burden, a grievous time that was not an enjoyable time at all. There was truly a light, a night and day difference between the two kingdoms. When Solomon followed God, God gave him truly a happy and pleasant workforce. But when Solomon chose to reject what God instructed, sin 
brought in a grievous and burdensome workforce. It was truly vastly different. Sin affects not only ourselves, but affects others. It affects how we treat one another. Go back to the book of James, if you will. We're going to pick up there in just a moment. For many, many years now, there have been rich men who use their wealth and power to deceitfully become even wealthier and more powerful at the expense of treating their workers, their laborers, cruelly and unfairly. James saw it all the way back in the first century. He saw there were some rich men who owned businesses, who owned a company, if we can put it in modern statistics or modern day setting, and made it a time of cruel and unfair treatment for those in whom they were employing, those whom they were working with in other parts of society. The rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. James saw it then, and by the way, that sin nature has not gone away. It still flourishes today. Before the Industrial Revolution, the differences between the poor and the rich were vast. There truly seemed to be little middle ground, if any, and the poor were truly were suffering. When the Industrial Revolution began, it seemed at first to be a promise to better days ahead. However, the newfound wealth of new business owners, new company owners, and new investors was still met with the same nature of sin and the covetousness of sinners to gain even more at the expense of the poor. The poor began to work in the factories. The abuse of people of all ages continued. Sewage flowed down the streets in front of the homes of those in poverty. Rats and disease accompanied that impoverished lifestyle rampantly. The rich became richer from the backs of the poor. And at this time of society, that time of history, there were some voices that became lights in this dark time. One man, an infamous writer named Charles Dickens, his infamous novels, including that called A Christmas Carol, This Christmas Carol, as well as other of his books, spoke to the hearts of nations and people across society, and it still does even so today, as it gave light to how God intended people to live honestly, fairly, and treating others like you would want to be treated. Charles Dickens gave a glimmer of what God intended it to be through his novels. But then there were others that 
manifested themselves as lights, but they were darkness in disguise. One was a man named Frederick Ingalls, and another, Karl Marx, who wrote, of course, the Communist Man Manifesto. These would use the pen to call upon the workers of the world to unite, to rise up against the unfair treatment and to act in a radical, violent, and a godless change. The poor struggled at this time with not enough rest, not enough to eat, and they struggled for hope. And the ideas of Marx and another man that would take the scene, a man named Vladimir Lenin, began to take root. The oppressed workers of the world, bullied and defrauded by a system that favored the rich and crushed the poor, took heed and found hope. Two ideologies were born from the despair of this movement, communism and socialism both from the same root. With astonishing speed, though, the ideas of Marx, honed and sharpened by the genius of Lenin, took over Russia. The Bolshevik Revolution sliced away all opposition. The Tsar and his family were murdered. The workers triumphed. The state seized all land, all property, and all businesses. The state collectivized the farms and factories the workers' paradise was born from each according to his ability to each according to his need was the slogan promised and given. In the West, change was less violent but equally successful. Trade unionism gave birth to socialism. Socialism became a political power. It arranged for a gradual legal, quote-unquote, massive transfer of wealth from the rich to the poor. Its theories took firm root in the universities where much sympathy was generated for Marxist ideas and passed on to successive waves of students from home and abroad. The world's infatuation with communism spread. The Soviet Union was born by means of force, aggression, adroit planning, and clever propaganda communism spread from country to country it seemed to be invincible at one point right after the second world war the communists were actually conquering territory at the rate of 44 square miles an hour the communists took over china and more millions of people were added to the fold of communism then as suddenly as it had risen the Soviet Union collapsed. The poor of the world discovered that the system did not work. It simply bankrupted countries that embraced it and gave rise to a new breed of tyrants, the elite party members who ran things. Nevertheless, despite the impressive demonstration of the bankruptcy of, com of communism, it still flourishes. Some people in Russia and some, in, some of the former satellites of the former Soviet Union would like to give communism another chance. In China, communism is still in vogue. 
in Western universities, a diehard elite still promote communism, but the poor are still poor and the rich are still rich. Socialism continues to rise, except it uses legal means, or shall we say, a cunning ability to manipulate the laws through heart-rendering situations to give voice to its rise to popularity and fame, going under the guise of treating people fairly and yet focusing nothing more upon extreme situations, tugging upon the heartstrings to get a law passed to bring the downfall of other parts of society. This continues dividing society and creates a false sense of security for the poor while the rich learn to navigate their finances through the webs of laws only by making them richer. The poor are still poor and the rich are still rich. And as we look at these experiments or ideologies of governments today, it is setting a stage, a stage that truly will come to fruition, I believe, very, very soon. As the world awaits a new Messiah, a new siren call, it now awaits the Antichrist. It waits the one who comes, who will come and say, I have the answer. I can bring peace. I can make everything okay. And upon this stage, we find James chapter 5. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 1. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for miseries that shall come upon you. That word howl there has a significance in its sound. It is a word that is used for crying aloud to the gods. James says, weep and howl, cry out to your gods, cry out to that in which you find your stability and wealth, and notice for your miseries that shall come upon you. That word misery speaks of distress, hardship, suffering, and wretchedness is coming. James warns that those who have become rich over the expense of walking on the backs of those who have been treated unfairly and unjustly, he says, your misery, your time of hardship is coming. And James then begins to teach us about, first of all, the coming troubles. James speaks in the following verses, verses number two through, five, uh, uh, two through four, about the troubles in which come to the rich who treat those whom they employ and those in whom they have climbed the ladder upon unfairly and, un, uh, and, uh, and unjustly. God never intended for a Christian, a child of God, to be a source and a full treasury of wealth, but rather a conduit in which he could channel funds through. It's not wrong for a Christian to have finances. Please don't get me wrong tonight. 
God blesses Christians. I know of some Christian businessmen who give millions, and I'm not exaggerating, millions and millions of pounds a year to help reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know of one man specifically who hires full-time soul winners, those who go out and tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ door-to-door, house-to-house, town center to town center, and pays them a good, fair, honest wage as they just simply go out and tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ, and their payroll is simply go preach the gospel. Oh, how wonderful that is. There are some men who recognize that God has given them the ability to be a channel for funds, to be able to invest in the Lord's work and to be a blessing to not only a local community, a local church, but to be a blessing to the world, reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not wrong to have wealth, but God wants us not to be the source of a treasury. He wants us to be a conduit. He wants us to be that in which he can work through. The Bible teaches us in 1 and 2 Corinthians about giving by grace. Oh, how wonderful it is to come to Jesus Christ and say, God, I want to be a conduit. I want to be a help. I want to give. And Jesus, as you put upon my heart to give, I want to give. And oh, how wonderful it is that we can pray and say, God, I would like to give uh, X pound amount, whatever that might be. God, would you help me to be able to give that? God, would you help me to be able to give that to missions, to get the gospel around the world, to be a blessing to that struggling brother, that that, uh, uh, that struggling sister in Christ? I want to be a help, and I want to be an encouragement to others. I want to be a blessing. There's nothing wrong. In fact, there's everything right with that kind of a heart. So please do not get me wrong that we are just simply speaking about a mentality or a amount in a bank account. That's not what we're speaking of at all, but it is rather speaking of the unfair and the cruel treatment of those who have earned their wealth at the expense of hurting others. That is what James addresses. He's seen it, I believe, firsthand, and he gives testimony of the cruelness of what riches can do. And upon this attitude, and upon this spirit, James addresses the troubles that are coming for the rich men. First of all, he speaks of their wealth that will lose its value. Look at verse number two with me, please. Your riches are corrupted. That word riches there speaks of wealth, speaks of treasury store. He says they are corrupted. That word corrupted speaks of decaying or rottenness. He says your riches, your wealth that you thought you have has lost its value and your garments are moth-eaten. He says what you've put your trust in has lost its value and will lose its value. Jesus warns us of that same thing, of putting our trust in riches. In Matthew chapter 13, we see Jesus teaching the parable of the sower. And as he teaches the parable of the sower, look at verse number 22 with me. The Bible says, He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. 
Jesus warns us about the deceitfulness of riches. They lose their value. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 17, we see Paul warning Timothy, his son in the faith, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. The Bible teaches us that in the end times, that in that moment, in the last days, that riches will certainly go away. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 18, notice what the Bible says in verse number 17, for in one hour, in one hour, 60 minutes, so great riches is come to naught. John said there's coming a day in which the great riches of society will all come to lose their value. They will all come to naught. James paints a picture of the once well-dressed man now clothed in moth-eaten and impoverished clothing. A man who once had it all now is standing impoverished in clothes that he would not endorse in any way before this loss of value. Matthew chapter 6, verse number 19, Jesus tells us, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Riches, wealth will lose its value. James warns, prophesies, if you will, about their wealth not only losing its value, but that their wealth will witness against them. Look at verse number three quickly with me tonight. Look at that first part of that phrase, or that verse. Your gold and silver is cankered. And the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Understand, when James penned these words, there was no banks like we know banks today. When a man had wealth, he would take his gold and silver and he would hide it. Many times in the ground, many times in a secret location, of course, that only he and those in whom he trusted knew of its whereabouts. James states that there will be a time in which those resources, those hidden treasures that you thought were safe and secure, James says that wealth will be needed one day. You will go to that wealth and you will want to have it, but you will find it to be cankered. That word cankered means rust. On this day of reckoning, the rich man comes and he looks at the stores of funds in which he has kept back to only find them rusted and decayed and of little to no value. We understand that gold cannot rust, but silver certainly can. It comes to a value that is truly just to care for the day of reckoning that has come. It has come to be a witness against them. Notice the Bible says, and the rust of them. That word rust is an interesting word. 
when we look at that word rust, so often we think of the uh, tarnish on the metal that has, of course, been eroded. But that word rust there is the Greek word ios, which actually means poison. James says their wealth will become a poison to them. It will become a terrible liability instead of the assets that they once desired. Can we give you an illustration of wealth that was desired becoming a poison? Take your Bibles and go to the book of Matthew. Look at verse number tw- or chapter 26, please. We read about a man, one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. His name was Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot desired some silver. Look at verse number The Bible says, And said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. For 30 pieces of silver, Judas Iscariot was willing to betray the Son of God. To sell the Son of God into the hands of the Roman soldiers and into the Pharisees' hands. He, of course, did so. He betrayed Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss. He received the funds, the 30 pieces of silver. But then notice what the Bible tells us happens with that silver. Look at chapter 27 and verse number 3 with me. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest, saying, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. Judas had this money. What he desired, this wealth in which he desired to have, but this silver that he desired became poison. It became undesirable. It became an affliction. It became something in which he did not want. And the Bible tells us that he brought it back to the temple. He brought it back to the chief priests and the elders to give it back to them. But notice what they say. What is that to us? See that, see thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. These 30 pieces of silver became poisonous not only to Judas Iscariot's heart and soul, but it became poisonous to even the chief priest in whom it was returned to. It was not desirable. Notice what the Bible says. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field is called the field of blood unto this day. 
Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord appointed me. Judas desired the money, and it became not only a sore contention, a sore and a poison to his heart and soul, but it became that price in which would buy the field that he would hang himself over. It truly destroyed him. James relays to the rich men who unfairly and cruelly earned their way. There will be coming a day of reckoning when that money recoils upon the heads of those who own it. James warns, about the witness that money becomes against the rich. The Bible then continues in verse number 3 of James chapter 5. As James begins to tell the vision that he has for, or the, uh, the, wealth that uh, the wealth that has a vision for them. Notice what the Bible says as we end on this verse here. Ye have heaped together treasure or you have treasure together, excuse me, for the last days. James cast a vision of what it'll be like in the last days when this type of behavior increases. James was fascinated by just one feature of the end times, and he stands almost alone in pointing out the labor management relations. He saw the accumulation of vast fortunes on the one hand, some of them based on callous exploitation of workers, we have seen, of course, in our own times, the emergence of giant multinational corporations competing fiercely for the world's business. James saw also an unconscionable exploitation of the workforce. Gone are the days when big companies looked after their workers and reward for loyal, lifelong service. Today, giant corporations dread a hostile takeover more than they fear their competition. Mergers of giant corporations tend to throw thousands of people, labor and management alike, out of work with total disregard for years of faithful service. Unscrupulous manipulators by well-established companies that have provided work and security to their workers and staff. They plunder these companies of their assets, force them into bankruptcy, and then make off with millions of dollars or pounds. Exploitation of labor aggravate matters. As for the plight of workers in some of the third world countries, they truly need a modern Charles Dickens to describe them. Anyone who has, has been to certain places like Rio de, Rio de Janeiro, Calcutta, or Cairo can see the plight of the poor and understand James' wrath at this at this evil behavior. James says they've heaped together. <coughs> Speaking of piling up, accumulating. There's a, a cartoon I used to watch as a kid and still do occasionally. It's just a funny cartoon, but it pictures this so well. A cartoon character called Scrooge McDuck. That's exactly the kind of behavior that James is speaking of. Of more, more, 
more at the expense of whomever I can climb over. James warns that those who heap together riches unethically, unfairly, and cruelly will find one day that as they live in their lavish lifestyle, that it will all come to naught. There are some today that have so much money they honestly do not know what to do with it and cannot spend it quickly enough. There are some today, and we hear of the stories where they build multi, uh, multi-million pound mansions and then step into it and decide they do not like it after a short time and tear it all down and rebuild it again. All that money gone to waste. Some buy new cars, seemingly one for every day of the week or every car for the week, uh, or every car every week, it seems. A suit that costs hundreds and thousands of pounds is worn once and then never wears it again and just continues this trend of lavishly spending upon oneself. James truly prophesies that this behavior prevails only for the final judgments to be poured out upon the world, taking the rich away by war, persecution, disease, or disaster. You see, their treasures will be a witness against them. Look at verse number four. Behold, the higher the laborers have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. Stop there for just a moment. The Bible teaches us that the laborers have reaped, have done what their employers have asked, but they have not been paid. You see, in Deuteronomy, God warns us of this very thing of not paying those who are working with us. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse number 14, Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. At his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells about a parable of a honest and a reliable employer who employs people to go out into the field and at the end of the day he gives them the wage in which yea he had uh, promised to give them that day the bible speaks highly of an employer who looks at his labors at those whom he employs and pays them and pays them in a timely manner pays them in bible times at the end of the day obviously our pay scales and pay time frames are a little different than they are when james but the point of the matter still happens that an employer ought to pay his workers and pay the wages that are owed according to the agreement that has been spoken upon and if that does not happen as james points out that there were laborers who worked all day came to their employer for the funds that they had worked for only to go away empty-handed 
pockets empty, no pay that was given. James says that God hears their cry. Notice what the Bible continues to say in that verse. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. James says the cry of the poor, the cry of those who have gone without pay reaches the ears of God himself. James uses that name, Lord of Sabaoth. It's the only time you'll find this name in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we would see it called the Lord of Hosts. There's one infamous time in which we see the Lord of Hosts. It's speaking of a giant that is coming against the children of Israel named Goliath. He curses God and defies the armies of Israel. And as he curses God and defies the armies of Israel, a young boy, a teenager named David, steps forward. And in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse number 45, we see David speaking to this Philistine. The Bible says, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. He says, you've cursed my God. You've cursed the armies of Israel. He says, but there is one thing that you have forgotten. I am a child of the Lord God. I am the child of the Lord of hosts. His armies are greater than you, Goliath. His armies are greater than the Philistines. There is no army greater than the Lord of hosts. He has the ultimate army and he stands with me and you will not stand against the Lord of hosts. And my friends, that's exactly, <coughs> excuse me, the position that James puts those who have not been paid the wage in which they were promised. He says, you are like David going to Goliath. And he says, you have the Lord of hosts behind you. You have God himself. And he hears that cry and it will not go unanswered. What an incredible God we have that fights for the wages of those who, who have not been paid and that in which they have agreed to. The army, the Lord and his army responds. And oh, how wonderful it is to see God deal perfect justice. Quickly, and I hasten here. Look at verse number five as James begins, not only shows that the trouble's coming, but he shows of the present troubles. What is happening presently? Look at verse number five with me quickly. You have lived in a pleasure on the earth and been wanton. He says, you've lived in pleasure. That word pleasure means luxury. And been wanton means self-fulfilling in your luxurious lifestyle. In other words, indulging and giving everything to yourself that you ever desired. The finest clothes, the finest homes, the finest materials, the finest cars, the finest of all that are out there. You are lavishly, luxuriously spending upon yourself. He says, you have nourished your hearts you fed yourself. You've lived on the finest of foods. You've dined at the finest restaurants. You've eaten the finest meals. You've nourished your hearts, notice, as in a day of slaughter. There's two 
meanings to this day of slaughter. First of all, it's speaking, I believe, as we see the context of the rich going and simply like a vulture uh, going down and uh, uh, going uh, uh, and spoiling the poor, spoiling those who are struggling dead, in essence, uh, looting and carrying away the bounty from those who are suffering. But there's another side to it. That those who work in a, such an unethical and a sinful type of lifestyle just to earn wages or just to earn some extra funds, God says that they are like the day of slaughter. What does that mean? It's like some cattle going out to a large meadow. That meadow lush and green. And oh, they seem to be feasting, just enjoying the tremendous bounty. They can never run out of green grass, green vegetation to devour. But little do they know that next to that meadow is the slaughterhouse. And next on the agenda, on the morrow, is for them to be taken to the slaughter. James continues in verse number six, ye have condemned and killed the just. James says these rich men have condemned, they have caused innocent people to fall under uh, jurisdiction or under legalities and you've taken and have stolen from them. And you have even gone to the point of killing innocent people just so you can have some more funds. Paul sums up this desire in 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some have coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And oh, how this so intertwines with James' thoughts here. Remember, James is addressing Christians. He's telling them and comforting the hearts of the poor who have fallen victim to being treated so unfairly about what is going to take place and what God is going to do to those rich men who employed them unethically, unfairly, and cruelly. But not only that, he also warns the Christian that you need to be ethical in the treatment of those whom you employ. Notice what the Bible now says in verse number six, the last part of this. And he doth not resist you. saw what was happening he saw what was taking place and the sinfulness going on he was speaking against it stating your day of reckoning is coming that wealth that you desire is one day going to become a witness against you it's become poison to you. you're not going to even want it anymore god will strip you down and you will become like that impoverished man you so are uh, you are despicably treating. And as he speaks in wrath and possibly even fury here over this cruel treatment, he makes a statement at the end of this verse, and he 
doth not resist you. He says, I know the day's coming. But why is God not resisting this? Why is God not resisting you? Why is God not stopping this? Oh, how we have that question so often. This has been going on for generations, my friends. It's not simply something in our society today. This goes on today just like it did in James' day and just like it did before James. For there was a singer, a man named Asaph, that struggled with this very thing. Look at Psalm 73, and I'm done. In Psalm 73, the Bible teaches us a song. A song that was sung wondering as to why he doth not resist. Notice what the Bible says. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That's what we're speaking of in the James. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily, they set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. What a powerful statement that is. Asaph was saying, I struggle with this. I'm seeing the wicked increase. I'm saved. And there's a time in which my heart just says I'm done. God, I'm not going this direction anymore. The wicked are living their lifestyle. They're treating others wickedly and harshly. Sinfulness is rampant. It doesn't seem like you're doing anything, God. I'm walking away. I'm done with it all. But then he went into the sanctuary. Notice what he says. Then understood I therein. He said, when I went into the house of God, I recognized, I recognized that their end was different than mine. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. 
How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reign. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I like that. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-warring from thee, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. Asaph got it. He understood that their day of reckoning was coming. He understood that their end was going to be different than his. He understood that there was going to be a time in which they were going to stand before God. And if they were not saved, if they did not know Christ as Savior, their punishment of sin was going to come upon them every day, every moment, every second of every moment for all of eternity. They were going to suffer the very destructive powers of of sin and in the eternal hell and he understood the punishment that was going to be received but he also understood that those who did know god that didn't claim to know him as savior and were going down that same way one day that chastening is coming one day that moment of chastisement is going to be had they will have to give an account for themselves he says my heart breaks when i see these injustices my heart breaks when i see the cruel treatment and the unfair treatment of these innocent people who are working and are working with these people he says my heart breaks to see possibly even himself treated in such a way he says but when i come to terms with it i understand that god is on the throne he does not lie he does not change and he's going to settle every account in full every account will come to that final invoice that final moment in which it must be settled that is why I believe in James chapter 5, verse number 7. He just continues with this thought, be patient. Sometimes we look at like Asaph and say, God, why aren't you taking care of this right now? I see the injustice right now. Why don't you come and take care of it at this very moment? James says, be patient. Be patient. God will take care of it. Not in our time, but in His perfect time. May I encourage every child of God who you look and you see some injustices that are going on in maybe your own workplace. May I encourage you to be patient. The Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is on your side. If you're an employer, may I encourage you to be careful on how you treat your employees. May I encourage you to be ethical in your treatment and ethical in which you conduct business.
Make sure that you're doing things right and proper. Not just in a loophole through the law that you can get away with, but ethical and right. Know the Word of God. Know what His Word has to say. Oh, how this world yearns for honest business. James speaks into this. He helps us understand that the rich men's troubles are present and they're coming. Be patient, therefore. God is on the throne. Thank God for that. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, He's on the throne. He's waiting and longing to hear you say, Lord, forgive me. I know not what I do. He longs for you to come to Him and to be born again. May I encourage you to do just that. What a wonderful God we have. He cares about how we work. He cares about what we do.